Greetings and welcome to Office Hours. If you are new here and you want to learn a little bit more about what we do, head over to officehours.global. Our first hour, we answer your questions on media and digital productions. And our second hour is something that we typically want to spend a little bit more time on. But today being a holiday, we're going to have an extended hour of questions. So go ahead and get them in. And speaking of questions, Bill, let's dive into them. Absolutely. Our first one comes from Noah Sargent of Fullerton, California, and he notes a theater a, called Cinema City, I guess, is closing down near me. How would you go about trying to attain the seats or other things from the former company? Nigel? The theater seats are actually extraordinarily expensive. If you ever build a home theater, you'll know you can spend more on the seating than you do on almost anything else. So my guess is, depending on whether this is a large chain or whether this is a, a small independent, they will have either sold all the assets at an auction or the, if they've gone bankrupt, they will be under some bankruptcy protection. Um, the, so the best thing to do is try and find out what legally happened to that business and then you can find a connection. Or hang around near the skip that the uh, demolition team will bring and see if you can uh, get a few chairs off it. Jason? I would say um, look up the corporation and um, wherever they're organized, figure out where accounts receivable is and then uh, call that call that number and then ask if um, if they're going to be auctioning anything. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I think Nigel hit it on the head. It depends on how they go under. If it's just it's been a small business and somebody's run it for years and they're closing now and they're, they don't have a lot of debt, you might be able to go up to the theater in the last week and just say, hey, if you're going to demo this place, can I buy some seats off you? And they may say yes and do it. If it's a large organization and it's in formal bankruptcy or something like that, then it gets more complicated and some broker will come in and, and buy the whole lot and put it up for auction. So you just have to be careful about where that's going. Yeah, and as everyone said, fun fact, um, in Atlanta, the MARTA buses, the transit system, they used to have TV screens on there, and we produced a show uh, on that transit television, and they went under. So I had the brilliant idea of like, oh, I can get this network for pennies on the dollar. And like Nigel said, that if, if someone, if it's gone under, then there's a lot of legal work that happens, and the time that it takes from like them actually finding a buyer, and then that going to that person to to then see, are they selling it off? Are they trying to um, liquidate? Just there's there's a lot there. So if you're looking for it, just be prepared for the time that it will take in finding someone. And there could be need for just even finding someone that you know that is legal so that they can navigate through that for you. Uh, next question. Samuel Nordvik in Norway says, thinking of building a camera riser, here's my first draft. Anything else to think or do differently? And he's got a link there to a SketchUp document. John? I looked at this. The only thing I thought was unusual there is, is that you, you've got two boxes there and you've got the camera across each box. I thought that there might be a, an opportunity for that thing to split apart, I, unless you just drew it that way to show that it's two parts that comes apart somehow. And I really like the mandolin that the guy's holding. That's my favorite part. Go ahead, Bill. 
I built something almost exactly like this early in my career. I built two boxes because I had to do a lot of work in the back of uh, auditoriums where there are people in front of me. Raising your camera is very powerful because if you have a raised stage and a raised camera, then people walking in front of your camera don't get in the shot. It's really very useful. The one thing that I did, so I built it out of MDF for strength and on two of the sides opposing each other of both of the boxes, I put a hinge and put those into two pieces. Why? Well, the top had little um, uh, wooden cleats so I could f flatten the two sides, move the, you know, push them in and collapse the entire box into kind of a large uh, but flat thing for loading in the back of a vehicle. And then when they were open, when the thing was fully uh, extended, the top would fit on and make the whole thing stable. The only thing I don't like about this kind of arrangement is that it gets really heavy. So transporting these boxes, both the two bases, the two tops, even though it was a big stack, it was a heavy stack of MDF or plywood, and they were a pain in the tail to move around. That's why I eventually moved to a spider pod, which is a device designed to do this same kind of thing, but much more portable. Alex? Yeah, I mean, if, generally what we've owned in the, in the past is spider pods. We make requests for risers. Uh, we don't actually bring them. Um, so it's been very, I don't know if I've ever brought a riser with me to anything. Um, you know, but we, we used to own, I used to own five spider pods. And so those were what we would use if we didn't, if we weren't able to get the request fulfilled for a riser. Um, the risers look fine. They're typically, for us, one meter squares. So they are one meter by one meter by one meter by, you know, it's, 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 one meter high, as well as a one meter square. Um, and and they do have that little gap to make sure that you're not adding vibration. The chair, I don't know how you're going to attach the chair. So it's is it going all the way to the ground and then having a base? It will not be stable on that riser attached to that that top. So you'll you would that pole would probably have to go all the way to the floor with a with an opening um, to stay there. And the worst thing that could possibly happen is the operator falling off <laughs> that riser. Not the worst thing, but could be pretty bad. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, do that. And then also when you, anytime you do these things, um, whether you're bringing them or you're making requests, always remember that one of the more important parts of, of these risers is stanchions. <laughs> so stanchions are, are the little cable, little ribbon that goes around them and make sure that they're outside of arm's reach. That way people don't put their drinks and their cameras and everything else on your, on your riser. Um, next question. I'm oh, sorry. That's not my, that's not my job. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, my job is to read it. So Mitchell Hill in Wilmington, Delaware, here on the panel. Innovative self-lit green screen eliminates many problems for a webcaster. What do you think? And they've got a link there. You know what, Mitchell? Do you want to go ahead and talk about why your question around this? I heard it mentioned uh, a couple shows back, not specifically this model, but the idea intrigues me. But uh, as you're probably going to hear, there's probably some downsides to it that they're not mentioning. But I'll mention the good sides that I see so far just looking at the specs. Uh, consistent color of green, uh, no shadows and things like that in it because it's self-lit. Um, it's uh, self-supporting, so you could stand it right behind you. It's about five feet by eight feet. Um, a few other things about it, but uh, it looks really good. But like everything else, it might be too good to be true. Right. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, typically these really just depend on how they're being placed. So um, the difference is that you have an emissive source instead of a reflective source. And what that means is there's a 
good chance of a cast coming back on you if you stand in front of it. Um, it's typically better than, you know, having to try to control the light in the field. And at the same time, you better be several feet away from it. Go ahead, Alex. I have one here. Um, I'm using it right now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, uh, but, um, but I hope to use it soon. Uh, it's, ironically, I've had it for a couple of weeks now. I, I, I feel a little bad that I've had it here for a while. Um, it's mostly just getting the space to put it up. You know, so the way when I rotate it around, the amount of space that I need in my own office uh, and the stuff that's behind me as I prep for for shows and stuff like that has not has been um, hard to separate. So um, so anyway, so I'm I'm hoping to have it up in the next couple of days. So we'll see how it uh, how it looks. Go ahead, Bill. Keeping my fingers crossed that it's a good solution, although I just overall, the more I read about how all the uh, AI is moving into analyzing shots and figuring out and doing math to separate out subjects from depth uh, maps. I, I think we are maybe going to need these less and less as we're going forward. I've been reading some things about some of the new technology in doing keys without um, necessarily dealing with a flat background or things like that. And it, it seems like where they're going Almost anything behind a subject that is a clean field will be mathematically able to be removed and pull a decent key off of that. We'll see. That's my fingers crossed. Mitchell? Yeah, it's interesting on their uh, literature um, at that link is that they say that you can put it right behind the talent, which scares me because, as Jason pointed out, it has an emissive surface on it, and green spill is likely to be a problem. Well, they say that it's not a problem, but... It's got light, so, you know, there's going to be an issue there. Um, also, you don't throw shadows on it quite as easily because it has lights that are causing shadows. I kind of like shadows sometimes. So the fact that it has no shadows may not be a good thing if you're doing a certain type of a key. Uh, but um, it's interesting that their features are responding to things that I, might be a negative. Yeah, I think that the, the issue really is is that I... I um well I, I'm I'm interested to see it because it really could work it could work well um the uh, uh the the issue that I have really is that number one is to to, to touch on what Bill was uh, talking about is that it's probably ten years I mean people who are technologists who talk about compositing are not compositors and so they they don't I just don't think they can see it like when I see that what they think is okay when they oh this is a great key. And it's not a great key. <laughs> like, it's not a great key. You know, like, and so there's all kinds of problems with the edges and everything else. And so I think that technologists are often not very good at it because they, they keep on, they see what they want to see and they don't see what's actually there. Um, and so I think that's the biggest problem that we have with most compositing tools. Um, and I think that the only concern I have with the screen, which I'm going to test again, is that uh, I'm concerned that they are much more aggressive about uh, you know, what you can do with it. I'm probably not going to be nearly as aggressive as they are. I'll probably have it pretty far back, um, you know, as far back as I can fit it into the frame. So, I, you know, I think that that's the, uh, I think everyone wants to make it easy. And when they make it easy, it's easy, you know, it's it doesn't it's easy and good don't tie together very well often. Uh, let's go to the next question. Next one comes from Simon Ray in Midlands in the UK. What would the panel recommend as a relatively low-cost, low-latency way of directing the audio in and out of several Macs to a single Aftershocks OpenCom headset? In other words, switching the headset between several Macs without repairing. Go, Jason. Mm, you're not going to like this. My immediate thought was use Dante, um, get at least one Dante actual device from Audinate, and then um, 
use Dante Virtual Sound Card for all of your devices. Then use the the Dante um, Bluetooth device to pair to the headset and mix away. Yeah, I don't think I have a really good great answer for this. Um, you know, it's not something that I usually, I admit that I want to do. Um, you know, for most of these things. Um, so I think that there are, you know, there's there's a, um, I think it's called, is it called Foil? High, audio Foil um, by, this is the same company that makes Loopback. Uh, but there's a couple of them that can redirect a lot of things. So it's, but it's not seamless. It's not like you can just walk from one to the next. Audio Hijack, I think. But no, no, audio, the same company, Airfoil. Um, and uh, Airfoil, you know, may be something you want to take a look at and see how you could use that as a way to cobble together um, what you what you may want to try. Now, next question. Next one comes to us from uh, Peter Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand. This time, one for the YouTube experts. I can't add this music video to any of my playlists. I'm assuming the poster of the vid has that option, but because this was uploaded seven years ago, would that be the problem? And he's got a link there. Go ahead, DJ. All credit goes to Laura Thompson for the research on this one. The video in question is marked as um, for children, and by default, you cannot add any video marked for children to a YouTube playlist, but there is a workaround. If you go to your view history and you look at the video, you'll see three dots uh, next to the video. There's a little hidden menu option there. If you click those three dots, you can add it to a playlist from that area. And really decide whether you, I mean, I, I can just tell you, you should never say for children unless it's a children's thing. Like, don't ever just turn something into for children. It's people seem like they think that they're going to get more. It creates it creates so much paper, like virtual paperwork for for YouTube on the back end that it restricts all kinds of things because they're trying to protect kids. But if you just have a regular concert clip, I think people think that somehow they're going to get more people to watch it by making making sure that everybody can see it. You should never click that button unless it's like actually for children. Um, next question. Next one comes to us from Samuel Nordvik and. Um Norway, is Unity Cloud the best next step compared to using something like Discord for Intercom? Yeah, it probably is. I mean, it, it probably is the the next best thing from, you know, you have Discord and Zoom and everything else, and probably your next step up uh, is, is Unity from a cost perspective. And it's it's definitely far more effective than using Discord or, or Zoom. Uh, you know, those are basically, you're at that point, you're essentially just doing a... Um, uh, you know, one big PL, and you'll learn pretty quickly that, that I mean, not you, but I mean, people who are listening will learn uh, pretty pretty quickly that more PLs and directs are, are useful. So yeah, it's probably the next step. Um, next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas comes up next. Would it be possible to have after hours, to have an after hours workshop on the Synology NAS, Network Attached Storage? I go ahead, Jason. You can do so much with a Synology NAS that that's, that's actually a very hard thing to do in a focused manner. Uh, my advice is hang around in after hours, get a bunch of people together and, um, you know, just float it on Discord. And there's a good chance that, you know, any number of us can probably just kind of cobble that together. But, uh, you know, we've talked about it and officially no. Next question. Ian Alford says, I have an A7 III and would like to buy a second camera that matches so I can switch and stream live events. Would an old cheap A7 II match? Should I stretch to an FX30, but will um, Micro Four Thirds match the full frame of the A7S III? Go ahead, Mitchell. I'd stretch just a little bit more and go to the uh, FX3 
which essentially is the same camera, just with some video-centric things on it. Uh, one of the things to watch out for on the uh, A7 series is that they can overheat. Uh, you got to be careful of that. Uh, the A, uh, excuse me, the FX30 and the FX3 both have fans in them, so you can eliminate that problem. But I think you could get a pretty good color match uh, between the FX3 and the A7 series. Nigel? Uh, my name is Nigel. I have a problem. Uh, and the problem recently resolved itself. So uh, I got uh, an Oh, you A7 have a gear problem. Yeah, we all do. Uh, yeah, I got an A7 IV. So I don't know whether an A7 IV next to the A7 III is a good answer, but I have acquired the A7 IV, and guess what I'm doing today? You're gas. It's gear acquisition syndrome. First step's admitting you have a problem. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead, Liberty. Next question. Next question comes to us from Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia. From your perspective, if you look at my lower frame right, you can see a light blue outline of my on-air sign. This is caused by the ProMist filter on my lens. Would an ND filter on the sign help to get rid of this? TJ? Um, yeah, I think uh, currently looking at your frame, Alex, um, I'm loving the lights that you have behind you, the... Um, but the on-air sign is brighter than pretty much everything else in that frame. So I think if you tossed a, an ND filter or two over the top of that to just knock that down a bit, it may not completely eliminate that reflection of that light bouncing off your front element of your lens and then back off of the ProMist filter, but it would probably knock it down dramatically so that you really wouldn't even notice it. Mitchell? Alexander, I have a uh, close uh, setup to yours. I have a bright on-air light behind me. And I am running uh, a black mist uh, on my uh, Sony camera because I want to make it look look better. Um, I never knew to look for that problem. I don't have that problem. So the only thing that's different is I have two uh, folds of ND filter material over top of the on-air light just to knock it back and off. And I think that might solve your problem. And sorry, you said that you have something over the on-air light. Is that what you said? Correct. The ND is on the on-air light. The pro, uh, the pro mist is on the camera. Copy that. Bill? Yeah, ND will do some things, but I think based on just the fact that you've got bokeh on those lights in the back, it, it's probably just out of focus in terms of depth of field. So it, it'll get better. It won't get sharp. Uh, the only way, obviously, to do that is to move the sign closer to the camera in some fashion so that it's in the zone of focus. And Alexander? See, see, the other issue, because I got these ProMist filters on all my cameras, I'm actually dealing with the same problem. Those string lights, if you shoot at anything that's not directly dead on at an angle, you can see it's doing the same thing where the light is bouncing off the lens. I don't even know what to do with those string lights, and I like the way they look. So that's a whole other problem. I don't know if anyone has suggestions for that. Mitchell? I don't think you're going to have a problem knocking back that on-air light because I was just looking at it on my scope here, and it's the brightest thing in your picture. So you've got a long ways to go before you can have a problem. And Alex? Yeah, Alex, Alex why are you using the ProMist filter? I guess is the question. Well, see, I did this deep dive on YouTube uh, on filters, and then I just thought they looked really cool. So I tried them, and I've tried various ones. I tried a one-eighth, a one-fourth, and I, I just liked what it did with the, the lights, the halation effect. All right. I, I, think, I think that the, for, for me as a compositor, they're the devil. You know, so, so, the, you know, so like we just look at them like, don't, whatever you do, don't put Promist on. So, so we're always, I've, 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 I put, I've put Promist on a couple for a few actresses that, that, that was in their rider. 
Um, but but I I haven't ever put it on. I mean, for all the stuff I've done, I haven't put it on other than that. Um, so it's, but I think that you're going to probably continue to see all kinds of artifacts with it because I mean, that's what we as when we do compositing, that's what we don't like about it is that it creates a whole bunch of problems that we can't get a, around because they're now optical rather than being something that's in the, in the, in the file. So, um, yeah, but anyway, just, I was just curious. I hadn't, I hadn't, I, I don't see it in the wild very often. Um, you know, especially for what we're doing, it, your, your image looks nice. So I'm not going to argue with, with that. Um, so, so if, it, if it's working, you know, rock it, but, but you're going to have a, you're going to have, I think you're going to constantly have challenges with it because, uh, you're putting something in there that's diffusing things. So. Mitchell. I'm using the, uh, the, the black mist and as Cinetone, which is one of the LUTs that, uh, it's a preset almost. And I'm sure that, uh, Alex has access to that. The question is, what are you using, Alex? Well, as far as a camera, is that what you're asking me? As, uh, the filters. I'm talking about the other Alex, uh, Mr. Lindsay. Oh. Sorry. Okay. What, what am I using? Nothing. Sure. Cause yours looks great. Yeah, nothing. I'm just, I have a lens. I have a, I mean, I have a UV filter on the front of it to protect it, but that's, I don't have any filters, you know. Next question. Next one comes to us from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. A GitHub project called GPT-4 Free, that's the number four, allows you to get free access to the GPT-4 model by fun funneling those queries through a sites like u.com, Quora, and CoCalc and giving you back the answers. The project is GitHub's most popular new repo. Comments? John? The API for GPT-4 is super expensive, so I can't imagine that that, that works. They're probably using 3.5 and quoting it's four. If they are, it's a violation of the of the terms and conditions of the use of the API. The only the best and free way is to go through Microsoft using Bing, um, but still, OpenAI itself still pr provides the best results of anything I find for 20 bucks a month. It's a huge bargain. Next question. Douglas Carmichael says, for someone uninterested in broadcast content, could a large monitor like the LG 48GQ900 be a useful TV replacement? TJ? I would say no, uh, and specifically for two reasons. One, um, the monitor in question does not support Dolby Vision. And for the price of that monitor, compared to a regular um, LG OLED television, you can buy a 42-inch LG OLED that does support Dolby Vision at Best Buy for less than that monitor is going for right now. It's $900 on Best Buy right now, and it's over $1,000 at Amazon for that particular monitor. I would go with the regular TV, and you don't have to plug it into any antenna or anything like that. Nigel? Yeah, whenever I see the word monitor, I start to worry about what's actually in the device. And, you know, in this case, I think if you're a gamer and you want to do gaming and low latency is really important to you and you want a 48-inch monitor and you want OLD, this may be the right answer. But I think you've really got to be in those restrictions. There are many other ways, as TJ said, to get there. Um, but I'd, I'd, I'd really decide what, what the use was non-broadcaster side what else do you want to do you want netflix you're going to connect it to apple tv all sorts of other things when you've looked at that you'll find there are cheaper alternatives and this is a great opportunity and time for you to submit your questions remember we've got this hour and our next hour for your questions so go ahead and submit them producers next question 
Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, said, Is Apple making the wrong move at the wrong time with a $3,000 VR headset when its fandom wants AI? And he has a link there discussing it. Nigel? Yeah, I don't think any of us really know what Apple is going to do. What 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 you see is rumors and half truths. And uh, you know, when uh, Rene used to do his his videos about Apple, I used to love the the sort of the ratios of the people and how accurate they were. So I think I think we know there's a headset coming. How much it is, I don't think we know. I think three thousand may be a good guess. But the thing about Apple is is the context in which they're going to launch it is all that matters, and that how they position it, you know, there's a first mover advantage in AI. And so whenever you announce products, you have to say, do I want first, first mover advantage? And typically that goes to the weaker product. Uh, or do I want to think about the context in which this is received by the market and then repackage it? This is a very long game. There's a lot happening very fast. Uh, and I suspect we will see all sorts of things and context around AI and the glasses and many other things that we have no idea about yet. John? Well said, Nigel. Uh, we'll go back and watch Mac Break Weekly from this week. They covered this uh, ad nauseum, and there was some really good information. Supposedly, there's a bill of materials floating out there. I don't know how accurate it is. It's about $1,300 for the bill of materials. Uh, but they've been working on this for seven, eight years. And so they've got to come out with this product, and they've got this huge ecosystem around it. So I think they're going to be fine. And and trust me, they've been working on AI for a long time. They're sitting on a ton of stuff. They've acquired more AI companies in the last 18 months than anybody else. So they're sitting on a lot of AI stuff that they're going to release when the time's right. Alex. Apple is rarely a first mover. Um, they like to let everybody else you know, they, you know, take, take the, you know, take the hits um, and figure it out while they just, they'll usually oftentimes sweep up after that and take over the market because they just watch, they just kind of watch everything, kind of see what, what the, where the wind blows before they have to put their foot down. So I don't think that there's any, there's any rush on there. And I don't think that the average, I'll be honest with you, I mean, average, I'm not talking about tech forward. I don't think the average iPhone user even knows how to use ChatGPT. Like, I don't think that the average per average person with an iPhone or the average person with a Mac even knows that AI is a thing other than something that shows up on the press every once in a while. Um, they just don't know. They don't know. I know my parents have no idea what ChatGPT is, um, you know, other than what I send them. I send them funny things from MidJourney. So my mom knows what MidJourney is because I send her funny photos from MidJourney. But but outside of that, she has no interaction with it or, or anything else. So I think that us thinking, it's just, it's funny to watch press in the in tech you know, it's very easy to fall into this trap of thinking that everyone's thinking like you are, and they're just not. <laughs> like they're just you have to you have to kind of back away from that and just realize that it's still pretty early on. And a three thousand dollar headset isn't going to matter really that much because it's only going to be for the developers. It's it's not going to be designed for the mass market. It's probably going to have a belt pack and it's going to have a bunch of things, and they're going to say we're giving you an opportunity to, to to design. I mean, it's really smart to say we're not going to worry about the price. If you want to be first mover in this market, it's going to be expensive. I think they could have made it $10,000 and made it high performance. The problem with it making it any more expensive is that they, you won't, you'll be able to build products that you, they can't build a piece of hardware for. So, so, um, so I think $3,000 is fine. I think they'll sell as many as they can make. You know, I think that they're hard to make. And so I think it'll, it'll be in the low millions, most likely, maybe mid millions of, of units, which is still like a, you know, a billion dollar you know, if you think about it, it'll be somewhere, they'll make between five and $10 billion on it. Uh, so it's not, it won't be a bad little hobby. Um, and, 
and and if they hit the performance, you know, just mark my words, if they hit 6K per eye over 100 frames a second, let's say 120, but over, we'll just say over, over mid 90s, um, it's going to change the market dramatically. That's what no one's, you know, no one outside of labs has seen that resolution and that frame rate. And um, it's, it makes a dramatic difference. So if they're able to do that, um, then, then I think we're going to see some, some movement. Bill? As big as Apple is, they now have to deal with products at scale as opposed to little things. And so I, I, what I'm reminded of is when Apple got into the content business, in the first couple of years of Apple TV and Apple producing shows, some of them were pitiful. I mean, literally pitiful. I remember thinking, oh, they're doing comedians in cars getting coffee? Why in the world are they wasting their time with that? It's already been done. Signed, uh, um you know, it's already been done and really well. James Corden knocked that out of the ballpark five years. Why are they doing that? And then I realized they weren't trying to put out the shows. They were trying to build an ecosystem in the production community. And here we are four or five years after that. And they've got how many shows winning Emmys? Because they built this huge ecosystem and they brought in the talent and they gave them time to develop. I'm considering if this turns out to be VR goggles or whatever, that they're making the same kind of play. They want to be in the space and they want to be playing. And just like comedians with co getting coffee in cars, they, they're not really focused on whether the first product succeeds. They're worried about whether everything they learn from getting the first product into the pipeline gives them these advantages as that part of the industry blows up over time. Nigel? Yeah, I was just going to add a point about, you know, product adoption cycles. The, the first stage is the sort of early innovators, which is about 2.5% of the market. And then you get the early adopters, which is sort of 13.5% of the market. And then you get into the place where you make money, which is the the early the early majority. And that sort of doesn't happen until about 15% penetration in the market. So we're really focused here, and I suspect Apple is really focused here uh, on creating an ecosystem and that first 2.5% of the market. That is not a price-sensitive market because it's not a consumer market. It's an industrial market looking to build businesses. And the, the product will be short of a 1,000 features that the early majority will need. It will be short of a price point the early majority will accept, but it will define what the early majority, which is where the money is made, will, will receive. And so if you look at the, the life cycle of something like an iPad, you know, or even an iPhone, the early adopters got something you could barely make a call on. But the early, you know, the early majority made a lot of money for them. Go ahead, Alex. I have a feeling the presentation that we see on Monday, if there is a headset, will be shock and awe. Like it will be, they, they're going to show, uh, my guess is hundreds or even low thousands of partners, um, you know, that, that they've already been working with. They're going to show um, um, things that are, I think they're going to show adoption in Keynote and the rest of the the work tools. Um, I think they're going to show, um, you know, they're, they're, because that's going to that's going to create a huge demand for USDZ. Um, they are going to, um, you know, show the integration development tools, you know, everything else. I think that they've waited a long time to do this. So I think that it's going to be probably one of the, if it, if, no, maybe they're just going to release some new Macs and talk about the operating system and, and move on. Apple, it's not, they've never, they haven't officially announced anything. <laughs> so they could just decide to push it off. So we, that, that may, that may occur. Their stock will drop 
probably twenty percent if it does. Um, but the um, but I think that they that that they uh, were most likely going to see probably their biggest push since they you know moved to this kind of filmed keynote. So I imagine that it's going to be pretty pretty impressive. And we will be doing a uh, just a reminder we'll be doing a, a, a watch along, so a second year experience where we all jump in and and watch it um, next Monday. So stay tuned. Next question. Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia. How do you go about trying to better reach your niche audio in 2023? We get feedback like great podcast or whatever, great webinar, followed by how did I not know about this before now? Yeah, niche audience. Jason? Um, well, I think that that means you're doing a lot right. And uh, a good part of this is simply just being patient and, you know, allowing your audience to grow organically. I would search Reddit and I would look for um, for verticals where you fit and just start talking about your podcast. And if there are various topics that, you know, matter to you, put a time code in, put it on YouTube and, um, you know, and just kind of bring it forward. Also, of course, in Incorporate that into kind of a greater social media, um, greater social media. Um, what's it called? Uh, plan, I guess. And yeah, it's just be patient. Alex. Yeah, I mean, most podcasts that aren't part of a larger network, you're, it's going to take you fifty to a hundred of them to get them. You know, to get it really going. I mean, that's that's when you see a, a big creator, they rarely started that way. They they started. They were able. This is TikTok, YouTube podcasts, all kinds of things. Um, they nugged through, uh, you know, a lot of shows to, to get to where they're at there. And sometimes they still have trouble, you know, expanding that market because it's just one of those things that, but if you have vertical, it's usually a little easier. Um, one thing to look at is inviting people that are, that are already have a social following um, and then make sure that they have the tools that they need to share it so that they like, here it is and make it easy for them to, to share it to their network to, to um, one of the most popular ways for podcasters to build their following is to invite other podcasters onto their show. So, so those are things to definitely consider. Yes, I was going to say the same thing that Alex did. And so I'll just add on to and then going out to other shows like going and being active in trying to be a guest. I, I don't know the the nature of the podcast that you're referring to, but whomever the host is or some of the talent that they can um, go on other shows and the look at the fact that it sounds like you have your your avatar, your profile of who your ideal person is. So it's always about where do they work, live and play and being in those spaces and thinking about that, as Jason said, from a social perspective, but then also, you know, using the, the audience that you currently have, how else can you reward them for letting people know about your podcast? So just some of those ways, because sometimes in the in the because it's dig, it's a digital product that we throw out some of the traditional ways of going out to events and and networking with people who are part of your ideal audience because if you because it's so niche then there are very specific places that you need to show up and again collaborate 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 that's extremely helpful bill Traditionally, all this stuff falls under the broad banner of marketing and a couple of the sub areas inside marketing that's always uh, we have to struggle with. Advertising is one of them, and that's paying to let people know about the product. There is also um, 
public relations, and public relations includes some promo stuff, and most of what has been talked about kind of operates down in that subset of the big marketing umbrella. Most of the time, if you seriously want to get out and build a large audience, having a marketing plan where you actually have a series of steps that you're going to go through to do this, maybe you don't have a lot of money now and maybe you're going to rely entirely on word of mouth and public relations and the kind of things we're talking about, trying to get it out there to influencers and stuff like that. But that's not a cohesive overall plan for building product sales over time. That is a marketing plan and it's kind of a different beast. And just to tag on one more um, point, going back to the idea of some crossing over with some traditional ways of doing things, maybe if it's possible to at some of these industry events or wherever your target audience is doing a live podcast or now just kind of thinking outside of the box. And so then that way you're going a step above what other podcasts may already be doing. Nigel? Yeah, only one minor thought, Tad. You said niche. So niche is a very specific market or a very specific group. Clearly, you need to go where those people are. But also, if you have a very defined niche, then there are very clear people in that niche, and they should be identifiable. So you may never get a big audience. You may get the right audience. So you got to really think about that piece of it, too. Next question. Alexander Knight comes up next from Vancouver, British Columbia. How does autofocus support work on Blackmagic cameras? Does it work with any lens that has autofocus mode? How does it communicate correctly with the lens? Go ahead, Bill. So in most lenses, and I happen to have just a random one here, if you look at the back of it, and let's see if I can get this back where it's in focus and try to get the lighting right, you will see a series of little golden dots along the edge of the lens. That is the communication system from this lens to whatever it's hooked to. If there's nothing on the back of the lens, then it's not doing any communications and it can't do that. If there are little contacts like that so that the lens passes information to the camera system, then it can go down your network wiring or whatever else. And this back and forth communication can come kind of come together. But the lens has to have some system for passing that along or it won't do it. Mitchell? Yeah, as Bill says, it's a collaboration between the camera body and the lens. The camera body does the thinking and the lens does the heavy lifting because the servos in it communicate through those little dots that uh, Bill just pointed out. Uh, with the camera. The question is whether or not the camera has the smarts in it uh, to automatically do that. I'm not sure that happens on the Blackmagic camera. I know with my Sony, it talks to the lens, especially if you use a Sony lens. Uh, you can use like a Sigma lens uh, in place of a Sony, but the Sony lenses with the Sony bodies, I know I'm a little off topic, um, is much snappier. So be sure that uh, your results may vary. Alex? Yeah, it really depends on your converter, too. So so if you're doing a Canon lens and it has the contacts, then it should be able to send the autofocus uh, to the Canon um, there because it is doing the work in the in the lens, in the uh, camera. Uh, otherwise, you just need, if you get a Metabones or something, if you're going to a different type of lens, you just need to make sure that that is, it says that the converter will convert that because what it's doing is taking the leads from the Canon and then making it available for the Sony lens or, or Nikon lens or whatever it's con converting to. So you need to make sure that, that those those pin, those pin Pinouts are are there because there are some less expensive um, lens converters that won't that won't do the electronics. Um, the Metabones typically do, um, but you just need to make sure that they're supporting autofocus. And Alexander, 
Yeah, so I was just thinking about because I'm looking on the used market now just to kind of play with a Blackmagic camera. But if I get a Blackmagic camera that's a micro four thirds style, I've already got a lot of micro four thirds lenses. So I guess in theory, if the micro four third lens has autofocus, that should just work automatically, right? Yeah. Yeah, I've never okay. seen, I've never had an one, never had a micro four thirds that supports autofocus. I've had micro four thirds that don't, you know, that are all manual that then you need to do. But if it, if it supports autofocus and you put a micro four thirds onto a micro four thirds, it should, it should talk to it just fine. And again, to our producers, this is a great time for you to submit your questions, but not only submit them, also vote on them because this show is produced by you. Next question. Alan Jones in Vicenza, Italy says, one of my Apple TV boxes requires me to hit done after using voice Siri to request fast forward some amount of minutes. My other two do not do this. They just say fast forward. I have three different gens. Possibly one is just not going to cooperate. I have checked the settings. Any help? Thanks. Alex? Well, I wouldn't look at the gen. I'd look at the operating system. So see what, what the operating system is. So the older gens may not be, they may be out of um, support for the updates. Um, and by the way, wow, I didn't even know you could tell Siri to go fast forward. I, I do it. I'm a ninja for going fast forward in and out with that little controller. Um, but that's that's what I still use the, the controller for it. I, I don't know if I, I think that saying it out loud would I feel like that would drive me absolutely crazy. But but I but I but I can't but I'm really good with the I'm really good with the controller. <laughs> so, so. John? Bill, that's Vincenza. My family lives nearby there. Thank you. Next question. Next question comes from Alex Lindsay in Nevada, California. I have an update on the audio for Cinegear. Go ahead, Alex. So the worst part was, is I, what did I just do with my cables? Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> I literally, I, I literally have been holding the cables on my lap. Oh you were so focused at answering how I, questions. How, <laughs> how did I do that? Oh, here they are. I had them. Okay, sorry, it was it was amazing. Um, so one of the problems that we had, uh, I was I put I, I set them, I hung them, and then I put something on top of them. So one of the big problems that we had here, I just thought I and want to thank Mickey for helping me figure this out. Um, I didn't. I would love to say that I designed these cables, but what we did is we just put Mickey and Mickey reached out to Gotham Sound in New York and just had them made. Um, and I just, I, the contribution that I had was a credit card. So, um, so anyway, so what we did is we got these, these are Hiroshi cables, Hiroshi cables. Um, and, uh, getting the, getting this right was a thing for me. So these are 10 pin and the, and this is really important because they're kind of a mess of cables. Uh, I'll show you the one we're not going to use first. Hold on. So this one, this one is, um, you see this this has a uh let's see if i can do this here um this is a 25 pin let's see if i cover my eyes it should so this is a little 25 pin that, that that will plug into an aja 12k or 12g um and I, we're not going to use that one because i can't get a hold of one of those they're back ordered um and so but what the issue that we had was how do we get all eight channels out of the out of the scorpio here and the Scorpio has two analog two analog outputs that support AES, so they'll do four channels here. And then I need to get the others out of the Hiroshi, so we had to build the Hiroshi um, cable. And um, so we have the Hiroshi cable. The cool thing about the one for the AJA is because it has this here, um, you can actually have a single cable that does, um, you can see, let's see if I cover my eyes again. These are the, so you have the Hiroshi and then you have the analog, um, the analog inputs. And these will carry two channels for each of the analogs and then another four channels along the Hiroshi. 
Um, there's also a little return cable here. Um, anyway, so this is, we had like a, at, at NAB, we had like a 30 foot uh, cable that did, that, well, did what the other one did. I'll show you that in a second. But instead we've got this little three foot one and we're putting it inside of a, I got a Sound Devices um, uh, Stingray XL for the, uh, for, the, for, the, for the Scorpio, which is arriving on tomorrow, I think. Um, and then um, for the one that we're actually gonna use, we have this little, this is the box that we used here. Um, this is audio to SDI um, uh, here. Can you know if I see it? So this is, the, and what this does is this has um, four of the, um, I've got four of uh, analog, and these are just analog, but they'll take two channels each in AES. And so we're going to use this. This will, this will limit us to 4K 30. That's why we're, it's only 6G. Whoops, I caught it. Um, anyway, so, um, and then uh, Hiroshi cable, and then the Hiroshi cable terminates in these two quarter inch jacks. So now what we have is this ability, I just had to give you guys an update of what we're working on. It's slow progress, but uh, it took a little while to go back and forth with them to, to get sorted out. Anyway, so this will, this will make the surround much, just much simpler. Um, to kind of tie together. So you'll see us experimenting with that at Cinegear. Uh, there'll, there'll be some experiment streams, experimenting streams at on Thursday as well as Friday. Um, so we'll we'll do it on Thursday. We'll see we'll see what we what, what kind of damage we did, um, and then we'll do it again on Friday. So you'll see the end of each day. You'll see us do a probably between a half an hour to an hour of HDR um, 5.1, and we are gonna have 4K this time. So we have 4K 30. So it's not 4K 60 yet. And it's because, it's not because the camera can't do it. It's because that little converter box doesn't do, uh, doesn't do 60 frames a second. And the, the AJA one is, is back ordered and it's very expensive. <laughs> it's like $1,200 for a little box. So, or 60, well, yeah, uh, $1,200 for this little box. So anyway, so we're, um, but we're slowly edging forward. So I thought I'd give everybody a little bit of an update. Well, thank you. For, yeah, thank you for that update. What other experiments should we, because I know with NAB, there were a lot of mm -hmm. various, any new experiments or I mean, anything you want to revisit? The big experiment that we're doing this time is we're, we're kind of pulling back some of the stuff that we did from the last year as well. So, and, but we're mixing it with what we did at NAB. So one of the things that was really popular that was really, we thought was successful was um, the after hours uh, activations. And so try, instead of having this kind of a mess of both doing after hours and office, you know, uh, you know, all of it at one time, we're gonna do after hours on Friday and we're gonna then do the YouTube broadcast on Saturday. And what that allows us to do is, is on, on Friday between noon and six, all of us are just gonna be fanning out and jumping into after hours. And we'll see how that goes as far as how much organization is required. We didn't do this last time, so we don't know yet, but we're gonna fan out um, we're going to show people lots of things. So from a uh, from a beautiful perspective, it'll be very low on the totem pole. <laughs> like it'll just be us with little, little cameras doing our thing, making it better. I'm a, I've got a, a relatively fun little kit that I'm that I put together for that. But it, but I think that we're going it, to it's going to be a little bit of a um, hacked together process. Um, but you're going to see a lot of the show. One of the things I, I felt like we have to keep on trying to figure out is how do we show you most of the show or a big chunk of the show and give you the spattering of, of all those things. So for six hours, we're going to be jumping in and out and showing things and, and everything else and just letting, well, if people are there to do it. But, but last time we had a lot of people in after hours. Um, so I expect to be 40, 50 people in after hours asking questions and then somebody there. It is not a place that we're trying to do interviews or trying to make it a show. Like the after hours is not a show. It is a, 
It's where we are showing you things that we're looking at. And then we're making decisions about what we want to cover. So as a group, we're going to make decisions about what we want to cover on Saturday. And then Saturday, we'll, we may interview folks um, if they uh, have time to do that. And we have a couple cameras. So one of the things we have to figure out now is that we have uh, uh, as many cameras as we need, but we have um, either two or three uh, Teradek bolts so we can fan out a little bit from there. So we can either do multi-camera or be jumping from you know, location to location without having to walk over there. So we're going to be experimenting with that as well. Um, and so it should be fun. It's it's going to be a, a lot of a lot of moving parts as usual, um, and uh, and we it's going to be I think it'll be a big step forward from what we did at NAB, and it stands on all the other things that have been done over the last year. So it's fun to come back because this was one of the first ones we covered, um, and to come back and we'll see how it compares to what we did last year. All right, Bill. Well, I'm just interested because I'm going to be there on Friday, and mostly what I'm going to be doing is trying to do live into after hours, but I noticed that my data caps end about 20 gigs, and I'm probably going to get throttled after that. I know that there are some, you can add MiFi and add another plan and the rest of that. It gets pretty complicated to do that. I know that in the past, we've had longer runs, um, and I just am curious about whether or not there are any useful or simple solutions for breaking through those data caps and getting more connectivity from the show. You know, I, I think that you find that with your phone, I mean, you, you can go for a lot of time before they really clamp you down. So, so I think that you may find that, and a lot of times it doesn't respond on the same day. <laughs> so, so what you, so what you find is that, is that it doesn't, you're not, they tend not to do it like when you're in the middle of something, they don't tend to lock you down. That's been my experience with Verizon, at least, is that they, um, or at and I'm sorry. With AT&T, you get a harsh warning um, at the, you know, after after you've had a long day where you've absorbed a lot of data. So um, so anyway, so we'll we'll see how it looks. It, it, we, we, this is part of the experiment is us uh, figuring that out. I mean, technically, we have a live view. We could wander around and pipe that into after hours as well. You know, if we if we if suddenly everybody's phones are locked up, but that's part of what we're trying to experiment with. Um, I, I see that as more of a challenge in um, at IBC as well because uh, you know Europe is oftentimes more constrained when it comes to using your cell phone than than in the U.S. Next question. Bart Gaffney in Economoac says recommendations for a good entry level wireless in ear monitor, and he specifies in white. Nigel. So uh, you know. Entry is always a challenge. Um, so if you want to do it the cheapest way, I would find a linsole. I don't know if they do one in white, but otherwise you can probably color it white. And then I'd put it into a Road Go 2. And uh, that's probably going to be the cheapest way you can get a fairly uh, entry point uh, wireless headset. Alexander. I read this as a question asking specifically about the wireless system itself. So... That's a tough one with if you're looking for the actual wireless system, it's tough to find a good one that isn't a 2.4 gigahertz um, band. I would try to stay away from those. Galaxy Audio does make some UHF band stuff that's a lot more affordable in comparison to the more popular Sennheiser 100 G4 series or the, the PSM uh, 300 series from Sure. So I would look at those. I think they're about, uh, what are they on Sweetwater? 229 for an AS950. I'll put a link in there. And that's a, that's a UHF band uh, system. And Alex? Yeah, the, um, 
uh, I, I don't know what the, the entry level ones are. I can tell you that the one that is, if, if I was, if I was going to set something up and I was using it all the time and I wanted it to be totally wireless, I would do a little, just do a little research. It's a little bit extra money uh, on Phonak. So Phonak is the P-H-O-N-A-K. Uh, they make hearing aids, but if you do Phonak broadcast, if you search for Phonak broadcast, um, this is what a lot of us use to put them in. These are, if you ever watched uh, Jack Bauer, um, you know, with uh, with his little, uh, put the little thing in the ear, uh, that the Phonak is the one that is probably what he was using there. The radio is all there. It's all in your ear. It In a small space, a 30 by 30 space, it'll broadcast just fine. And it's completely invisible. Um, you can also look, the other thing you might want to look for is inductance, um, inductance earpieces. So Otto makes one. It's a, yeah, it's a little ring that goes around like a necklace, um, and it is, um, and it will. Then you can have any wireless to you, and then it just pops in. So then you don't have any wire or anything else. I find that the auto ones, the I've used them, and the volume is very low. <laughs> so so you have to really you know listen to it. It doesn't really have a lot of um, put of of oomph to it. Um, the Phonax I've used a, a great deal, and they are uh, they're great. Um, they are a little bit more expensive. The cheap way to go is is um, is to get the there's an IFB system or not an IFB but a Comtech Comtech um, is makes these uh, um, things that you hand out at sets to do this stuff and you, and it's the same frequency as the Phonak. If you get the Phonak transmitter, it's really expensive. <laughs> so so it's you know that that makes it expensive. But the earpieces are I think the earpiece set is about twelve hundred dollars. So it's not it's not really cheap. But but what I will say is that once you get it, you'll use it all the time. Just make sure you buy a lot of batteries. Thing you every couple hours you'll need you'll need a new one. Mitchell. I have an answer for why there's a specification for white. His nickname is Santa Bart Gaffney. So there's your answer. Next question. Uh needs to be beard invisible. Uh do you have experience with cam with the Camlink Pro PCIe card for HDMI capture? Alex, you know, I don't have it, and I really, you know, if if I had a, if I had somewhere to put it, I'd probably put it in there. But it it, it is, uh, it looks really fascinating. It's the only one that I know of that I've seen that does do eight, four HDMI ins. So um, I think that I, I I don't think I don't think Blackmagic has four. I think they have two. Um, um, I would lean towards Blackmagic cards over, um, you know, over the over these, um, you know. So I think that the Camlink ones we've had enough issues with the regular Camlink one that I probably wouldn't buy it first if I had another option. So if there's, I would look at the Blackmagic HDMI input options, they're probably going to be a little bit more solid. Um, but, um, but, but I haven't, haven't tested this one specifically. Next question. Next one comes to us from TJ Asher in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Who's the best voiceover talent working today? Who was or is the best VO talent ever? Mitchell? Yeah, it's a, that's a tough question, TJ, because there are so many specific niches within the voiceover market. But I would say overall, the most popular living voiceover person right now is Morgan Freeman. Um, used to be uh, a bunch of other people who are no longer with us, like Don LaFontaine. He was the guy that uh, made the In a World voice uh, very popular. And before him, uh, people like Ernie Anderson he used to do The Love Boat. He was the uh, the voice there. And the greatest voiceover person of all time, in my opinion, is Mel Blanc, the character voice. Bill? 
plus one on Mel Blanc. No one will ever touch him because he was there at the beginning and invented half of the stuff we listen to now. He was Bugs Bunny and Foghorn Leghorn and and so many characters out of those Warner Brothers cartoons days that his his range, his ability to have a conversation between Speedy Gonzalez and Bugs Bunny and Marvin the Martian was insane. And I think everybody who is in the voiceover industry looks back at Mel and goes, wow, what a what a talent. Um, I, I don't know who's the, – the tough thing is that eras change and people look for different things. And the other part of it is that if you're attached to a character as a voiceover person, so whether you're doing Darth Vader on a cartoon series or something like that – if you do your job really well, you get the glow of that success. And I think there are quite a few voice talents working today who people really adore, but in the niche that they're interested in. Uh, it's a funny thing about VO. If you are the voice of a beloved character, uh, your performance is a huge part of that, but so is what the writers and the creators do with that character to make that character massively appealing to the audience that it's aimed at. It's an interesting phenomenon. TJ? I would think uh, uh, Mike Rowe might be one of the people working today um, as one of the more popular or better vocal talents. And not only has Mike got a great voice, he's an amazing voice, but he's also an amazing storyteller as well. And I was going to, this is an interesting question because at first when I read it, I was like, I have no idea. And I saw, so I, I like the uh, taking us down memory lane, but then I also didn't hear any women's voices. So I was like, oh, Cree Summer. Um, she used to be on a different world, but her catalog for all these voices, because um, you'll just be surprised. And I was trying to quickly find um, some of the ones. So Cleo, the Clifford. Clifford, the big red dog, like all these these children's voices. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was a great question because I, I never really thought about that from that side of things. Nigel? So there's a, a reader for Audible books called, I'm looking at Ron McClarty, I think it is, who does lots of David Baldacci books. And I think he's great. But you know the funny thing, there's, um, I'm a big fan of Lee Child series, the Reacher series, and the guy that read the first, 20 or so, doesn't do it anymore, turned up as grandpa on Blue Bloods. I cannot watch Blue Bloods because all I hear is grandpa talking as Jack Reacher. <laughs> Mitchell. Um, really great female voices. Thanks for pointing that out, uh, Liberty. Uh, June Foray and the uh, uh, the voice of Rocky, uh, Rocket J. Squirrel, um, and a lot of other character voices back in the old days during the Mel Blanc era. So uh, I would give her some credit. And uh, if anybody wants to hear my Marvin the Martian imitation, um, I'll be hanging out in after hours. <laughs> Bill? I wish I knew the names of the two. I, I listened not long ago to part of the Stormlight series that Brandon Sanderson wrote, and I was just gobsmacked at the talent of the audiobook narrators. I think it's a woman named Kate Reeder, and, and they use what's called dual narration now. So they have a guy who does all the male parts or does a chapter, and then um, the woman does the other chapter. They happen to be married, and they're a team. And I'm I, more and more as I expend more of my energy kind of just looking at Audible, the way that those narrators work is stunning. And they have to bring out, you know, 40 characters over the course of the book and they have to do male and female. 
uh, at the same time, one reader. So if it's the woman, she has to do the male voices. And if it's the male, he has to do the female voices. And keep these characters distinct over that much characterization. They're, they're freakishly amazing talents, the, the actors in that. So hats off. Alexander. Yeah, it's totally subjective, but I'm just going to list one name for me because when I discovered who played this voice, when I found out that Luke Skywalker, Mark Hamill, was the voice of the Joker, I just couldn't connect his face, his normal speaking voice and his face with that character. It just blew me away. Next question. Kate Reading and Kate Reading and Michael Kramer. Those are the two and uh, boy, fabulous. Anyway, Samuel Nordvik in Norway. What is the cheapest pan tilt zoom camera that you would consider using? Alex? Uh, I would say the uh, link. <laughs> this is this is the least expensive one. This is a two ninety nine, um, and this is a USB based uh, pan tilt zoom. Uh, and this is the Insta three sixty link is probably the least expensive one that I would I would look at. Uh, as you step up, I start looking at after that. Bird dogs are really uh, pretty good in that kind of one to four or five thousand dollar range, especially if you're looking for something that might have NDI in it. Uh, so the bird dogs are going to be really built for that. But they have other services like SDI and, and HDMI as well. Um, they're very solidly built cameras. As you get into the $5,000 range, you're probably looking at um, the Canon uh, CRN500 is probably the one that a lot of us uh, have looked at or used. Um, so those are those are great there. And as soon as you go up into the $10,000 range, um, you're really looking at the uh, FR7 from Sony. Um, those are the ones that I would probably look at in the range from that. It, it, there's no limit to how much you can spend on a PTZ. Um, so we could keep going, <laughs> but but those and in, in the sub ten thousand dollar range, those are the groups I think that are kind of the the leaders in those different areas. Next question. Liberty White in Atlanta, Georgia. Last Monday, Cindy Drozdep presented us with a masterful demonstration of live teaching. Amen. Who are some of the people that you follow who do a good job live and why? John. Cindy did a great job. I was truly impressed with her setup. Um, there's a, there's a gentleman named Stephen, um, Stephen Haywood, who, who a lot of people on here, we all came from Blab prior to this back in, um, 2014 to 2016. Stephen used to work for Telestream. He now works for PTZ Optics. He does a gaming live program once every other week or so. It is fabulous. It's super well produced. And the guy does a fantastic job. He always has live guests. Con contributors coming on. He's got really nice graphics. He does a great, great job. And I should have, thank you for that, John. I should have prefaced that or uh, jumped in with just like Sydney. There's one thing when people, you watch them, their tutorials or whatnot, and it's pre-produced, but when you're doing it live, you got to pay attention to possibly the comments or making sure that you're engaged and your hand movements and all of those things. And that's why Sydney, you know, again, hats off to you. Um, Dan Flores has been on Office Hours before. I think he does a great job. He does animation and he has various groups open when he's going live, but just his ability to again engage with the community to also as he's drawing teaching and that being specifically the part of like you've got to know your material really well so that you don't get thrown off by comments or things like that so i just think being able to engage with the community and then also um just having your material solid and seamless is what makes a great live teacher alex 
Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's uh, quite a few. A few. I, I have to admit that I spend a lot of time watching live broadcast and then and then trying to look and glean uh, what I have, what I see there. So, of course, the ones that I look at the most are probably Sunday Night Football and Thursday Night Football. Um, I think that they're the the high point uh, of of all live. I mean, you're seeing the absolute apex of a live event you know, um, being done, being executed. So usually what I'm doing is watching those and, and I'm not, I mean, maybe I watch them for the, fo- I don't really watch the football games unless the Steelers are playing. But but outside of that, um, I, I mostly am just watching the graphics, watching how they jump from one thing to the next. Um, it is a master's course in uh, understanding how a live event has to get pieced together. And I'm really, I often pay very, very close attention to just looking at where they are. They went from here to here. They went from here to there. They went to, you know, oh, they, they added this thing in here. How are they adding that flavor? But it's, it's again, if you're, you, you should, if you're interested in live, be watching at least Thursday Night Football, um, not because, not for the game, but just watching what that is the, the, the highest level. And we've had some of the folks that work on it on, on this show, but that is, in my opinion, the highest level live um, production that's done on a regular basis. Tony? Yeah, I just wanted to speak from the point of a non-professional in terms of what Cindy was able to accomplish. And I think it was amazing. And I have a younger brother who has just got the bug of doing things with wood. And he shares just little short videos with us, uh, the family. And I am pushing him to rewatch what Cindy did, because I think it was a masterful job of, of, as Liberty said, of utilizing um, her equipment live. And it was just absolutely amazing. So I just wanted to say thank you, uh, Cindy, for demonstrating that. And I think that that is uh, encouragement for regular people. Bill? Just want to add my voice to the fact that what Cindy does what did was amazing. It is absolutely difficult to do that combination. She had curriculum. She knew what she was going to teach. But to be able to combine teaching your curriculum, which you are aware of, and handling audience questions and doing the off-the-cuff stuff where there is no preparation for it, you have to do it in live, is an example of a good skill. And in fact, on that topic, I've mentioned this before, but in terms of a live presentation versus a live teaching, those are two different things. Whether you have a curriculum going in or not, what happens when your curriculum fails? And I'm reminded of what happened with Anderson Cooper on CNN when he had a two-hour block and had to fill it when it got rained out in Central Park in New York, watching him handle two hours of live presentation that you could not even imaginably prepared for. I mean, the entire curriculum, the entire musical performances just went out the door and you're facing a two-hour live national broadcast and being able to do that. I think that is one of the most difficult things I've watched and he pulled it off with amazing aplomb. Alex. And that's why we don't like to do when you ask why I don't do events outside, like I don't even bid on events outside. <laughs> like, like, like I don't. I, like, I, you know, like if, if I get forced into it by a regular client, uh, you know, like I can get, I can get my arm turned and I'll end up outside. But, but man, like I, I just think about that Anderson Cooper one. I was just like, that's why I don't. That's why I don't go outside. Like I'm just like, how about we do this inside? It'd be great if it was inside. We could have a window. We could use green screen. We could. <laughs> I could do an LED inside. wall. I could fly you. I could. I could rent you an SR seventy one. Like, like let's just not go outside. Like so. So anyway. Um, uh, but but I do want to say that uh, I just wanted to annotate what I said. You know, because I, I again I look at broadcast, but 
I was I I just want to underline how blown away I was by Cindy's presentation last week. It was like watching her seamlessly jump between all the things that she wanted to do. I felt like every educator should see that, you know, um, you know, at, at all levels. Like you can set this thing up where you can jump around and just kind of. But it's it was, and the thing is, is it wasn't just something that you set up and it's the first time she used it. You could tell that. You know, she's, she just uses it for hours and she just knows how, where everything needs to be. And I think that that's a really incredible lesson for, for educators. And I'm actually showing that to some folks uh, that do training other parts of the world of like, if you're trying to train, they're training in the, the uh, crafts, you know, so whether it's masonry or, or in, you know, in the trades, you know, masonry or, or, or engines or, woodworking and and showing that you could be doing something pretty complex when it comes to a class. And so just incredible work. And just pulling in, Dr. Clark in the comments said the late Bob Ross did a masterful job of teaching painting on video. Fascinating to watch. Nigel? Yeah, I was going to one uh, ditto for Drisdo, Cindy. Uh, great, amazing to watch. I wish I had such skills. Um, What's interesting to me is increasingly getting confused about what is actually really live. And I think, you know, we we come to see so many things that are done as live or are completely fake. It's it's really it's it's almost the only way to know now is news or sports. F1 uh, in terms of coverage I think is still one of the best. Uh, and and also just to add to the story your your Anderson Cooper, I saw the same thing. We lived actually in Boston during the time of the Boston bombing. And all the cameras were actually set up outside our front door. I'm watching some of those guys, uh, Shep Smith in particular, go for a couple of hours on no information without really repeating it or setting off um, other scares. It was an amazing feat. And Mitchell. I just want to compliment uh, Cindy on one of the best green screens I've ever seen. It was very hard uh, to look for any flaws in it. She, uh, she rocked the green screen. So... She could have done her wood turning outside and we would have known. Next question. Next question comes to us from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. Panelists, what's next step for my setup for use with conversations with Tony Mobley and my house of worship work? And he notes 10S Max Apple iPhone is my primary camera, Mac Mini M1 primary computer, Zoom H6 for audio interface with a high LPR40 microphone. Go ahead, Alexander. Yeah, so... I guess my question would be, what do you think you're missing? Uh, just by looking at the list of equipment that you've supplied there, I would say that the Zoom H6, as far as an audio interface, I mean, it's not, they don't have the, the best preamp. So if you're looking for something better, the new Tascam Porta Capture X8 is really good. It actually has four XLR inputs. So uh, if, you, if you ever want something that you could take somewhere and maybe record some audio with a few other guests, uh, having a few extra inputs is a good idea. The preamps on the Porta Capture are uh, a lot better than what you have on the Zoom H6 there. It has not Dugan auto mix, but it does have a form of auto mix that does pretty well at balancing multiple open mics as well. Uh, it has a really, really easy to use interface with a beautiful large touch screen as well. All the dynamics processing you could want as well. And if you do want to go fancy, it does have an optional Bluetooth adapter. You can even do time code with Atomos products as well. So it's a pretty versatile recorder if you want to stick with something that's portable. Alex? 
Yeah, probably. Um, I mean, the, the first two things I'd probably go after would, um, as far as progressing, would be to number one is shorten the depth of field. So find a way that you're gonna, um, you know, t you know, have you pop a little bit more forward. Uh, also, um, w we tend to avoid um, bright backgrounds. So you know, like I tend to avoid them anyway. Um, and so I would probably think about what that might look like. You know, back there um, of something. I know that you're in a house. <laughs> There's a lot of negotiation and changing the color of the background, but those would be things that I would that I'd probably look at. But the first thing I'd probably do is find a way to, uh, you know, some apparatus um, to 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 decrease the the depth of field so that you you pop out more from the from the background. Next question. Lalek Lopez Waterman in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Is there a good way with lots of mobile devices for the after hours portion of Cinegear to keep the resolution up in Zoom? iPhones only, no iPads. Maybe 720p is okay? Alex? I think for this, uh, I think 720 is fine. I mean, I think that we, um, I, 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 I do think that we should try to stick with phones uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, so if the phone is capable of 1080p, then then we should try, we should experiment with that. Like, hey, let's have only people with 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 iPhones or, or whatever in the, in it. Does it really make a difference? And take a look at it. But I, I do think that for the level of work that we're trying to show there, I think that, that the, iPhone, the 720p is probably uh, acceptable. Next question. Next one comes to us from Olivier Rouchard in Saigon, Vietnam. And Olivier or Oliver says, pre-purchase question, would the Noise Assist plugin for the MixPre 2 series be available on all channels once installed? Mitchell? Uh, they only get you one channel, uh, no matter how many licenses you buy. You got to go up to the 8 series before you can do multi-channel uh, Noise Assist. Alex? Yeah, and that has to do with the, the processing power that's in the box. So it's not something that's artificial. They just don't have the processing power to do more than uh, one channel at a time on those smaller devices. Next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC. Does anyone have experience with the sound devices Mix Assist plug-in on the MixPre series? How well does that work with respect to handling multiple open mic? And is it as good as the Dugan Auto Mix? Alex. I would say it's as good. Like the, the Dugan Automix, so, so Dugan Automix is very effective. Uh, the the, li the licensing for it ran out quite some time. You know, the, the patents ran out a long time ago. And so people have done things that are fairly similar to it in the past. Um, I think that the, there's a great relationship between um, sound devices and Dan Dugan. So they have a Dan, du I, think, I believe, a Dugan Automix uh, plugin available for it if you want to stick with that. And they've been very careful not to compare those. But as someone who's used both of them, um, it's pretty close, you know, as far as the, um, the, the quality of it. Um, I think that the, in the fuller version of the Dan Dugan auto mixing, there's more tools, um, to tweak them. So I think you have, you have more apparatus to, 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 um, fine tune it, but I've never used the Dugan auto mix on the sound devices. I've only used the, their mix, their auto mix, and it's worked well. Um, again, when we work on larger mixers, we still use the Dugan, Dugan auto mix. Next question. Vincent Alvarez in Bellingham, Washington, up next. Need to order three 27-inch PC monitors for one workstation for basic business and Zoom usage. I can't decide on resolution. Should I choose 1920 or 2560 or 4K? Although Sharp will 4K be too small for older eyes, and he has an around $1,000 budget. User only said that it must be 27 inches. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I'm sorry to contradict that 27-inch uh, thing because if you're doing 1920, a 24-inch is a, is a sweet spot for the size of the monitors. So 
the fact that they want 27, I'd find out why that's important. TJ? Yeah, for a 27-inch monitor, I wouldn't go 4K. I would stick at like a 2560 by, uh, say, like 1900 or, uh, or yeah, resolution. Um, the uh, And I would recommend a Dell monitor specifically. I'm sitting in front of a couple now. And for the bang for your buck on a Dell monitor, just can't be beat. And Alex? I'm sitting in front of uh, five Dell monitors. <laughs> So, um, and uh, these are all 24 inches in their 1080p's. Uh, when we go to 27 inch, we tend to go to the 4Ks. And what was the reason that you, you've said this in the past before, why you've used Dell for the most part? Uh, Dell fulfills a variety of, of, of needs for me. Um, number one is they're pretty solid monitors. Uh, I, we probably, within own I know, we probably have 30 of them. Like they're, you know, and so, um, and we've used Asus and, a lot of other ones. A lot of it has to do with Dell kind of standardized on how they work, so it was easier. I do have two different styles here, which drive me a little crazy. But, um, uh, but the uh, but the other the big thing is is there are a handful of things that every monitor for me has to have, um, and it's non negotiable. One is it has to have a visa mount on the back. I have to be able to hook it to an arm. Um, so I, I if it doesn't have a visa mount, I immediately not I'm not interested. Um, and then the second thing is. It, and yes, you can get things that will mount it and everything else, but it, you know, it's just not, it's not. The second thing is, is it can't have an po external power supply. It has to be a C13 IEC cable input. So a three prong, it can't be a clover. It can't be anything else. It is a standard three prong, um, you know, input. And that's because I have to be able to go to a hardware store and buy it. So I, I need to know that it's going to be what I expect it to be when I buy it. Um, and then the third thing is it has to have HDMI in. <laughs> so like, I know that sounds crazy, but you get into some of these gaming monitors and they're all, um, uh, you know, they're they're all the uh, display port. You know, they'll be all display port with no HDMI in. And so when you, when you say I need those three things, you end up with very few options um, in monitors. And so um, Dell becomes one of the only monitors that you can get that, get those three things together. And then once you start buying them, you start resisting buying other things because you you know you have a way that you use them all and having a a bunch of weird connections and everything else. So once we standardized on those, they and we've been using the Dell. You know, again, we've used lots of many many different monitor LG, um, you know, uh, all kinds of weird cheap ones, Asus, uh, Acer. You know, all of these things are, are things we've used and we've just really settled on the Dells. TJ. Uh, two other things. One, Dells also happen to have generally very good stands. So if you're not visa mounting it and want to have it on the stand, many other monitors um, will actually rotate 90 degrees so you can use it in a vertical fashion if you're into that. I don't even know uh, where the stands are. Like, like it's, funny, it's funny. I was like, I was like, oh yeah, they do have some, some of them are good stands. I have one stand here, but most of my monitors, I have to go like I, the stands are in some box somewhere. Yeah, and um, I, mine, because they're so big, they're sitting on the stand. And um, the other thing, keep in mind that if you're going to drive three 4K monitors, you probably need a bit more horsepower to drive that much, uh, that many pixels. So just keep in mind the uh, horsepower of the machine that you're going to be driving these monitors with. Go ahead, Bill. 
So I'm going to try to do this. I'm going to see if I can switch to the little camera here. Oops, it's sideways. I don't know why that is. But um, after hiding some interface stuff, what I have moved to are these Kogoda IPS monitors. And I've been shocked by them. They are driven, bus-powered by the laptop. But I have a horizontal monitor on one side. On the other, I have mounted it vertical. And the new IPS monitors somehow react with the Apple software in there for monitor. And it gives it uh, a really good picture. It's simple. They're incredibly lightweight. I agree with Alex that if you're looking for mounting, I'm having to futz around with a little clamp. Let me show it to you on the side of that so that, you know, it's just a plastic clamp. But these are so thin and so lightweight that I can actually pull it down and put these in my bag to take on location. So I can set up my three major monitor setup anywhere I go. And I've just been very happy with them. They're not grading monitors, but for interface work, they've been fabulous. Nice. Mitchell? I want to put a vote in for another monitor choice, uh, Hewlett Packard HP. Um, I have six 24 inches in this room, uh, all ranging from their regular monitor up to the dream color. They have excellent uh, color rendition. They're a bit pricey, but I've had zero failures on any of these six monitors that are in here. Uh, now that I've mentioned it, they're probably going to fail. But other than that, I've had very good luck with them. And Mickey in the comments says, I would get a 4K and set the computer to scale the display to reflect a 10, I'm sorry, a 14, uh, 1440p scaled resolution for a much sharper image. Next question. Next one comes to us from Bart Gaffney in Oconomowoc. Uh, from a 3,000-foot perspective, what are the advantages for introducing OBS into a live broadcast? And what is the fastest way to get tuned up on OBS if you've never even seen it? Alex? It's free. <laughs> That's the number one reason to use it. Um, you know, so I don't, I, you know, I think that it's, uh, it depends on, if you're using it on a Mac, don't do that. Um, like, don't, don't use it on a Mac. So um, it's really not stable and you'll be unhappy. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that the, uh, but that's the biggest advantage. Otherwise there's, there's tools. I think a lot of the other tools that are available on the PC are probably, uh, more effective than, than OBS. I wasn't sure where you were going to go, Alex, when I saw the OBS. <laughs> John? Uh, note to self, never answer after Alex. <laughs> Next question. Next one comes to us, Mike Potter in Hanover, Germany. He says, with an iPad, I prefer using a browser, Safari or Chrome, for Discord. But every time I switch a channel and the on-screen keyboard pops up, what is which is annoying, I guess. With the Discord app, that does not happen. Is there a setting or workaround for a browser? Alex? Very unlikely. And I'm very curious as to why you wouldn't want to use Discord as an app on the iPad because it works so well. So, um, you know, I... Uh, I, 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 it would be, it'd be interesting to hear from you why why you would do that. Um, you know, because the, the native apps for Discord work um, dramatically better than the web versions. Like, so if you're using a web version of it, it's not just. I mean, that might be the one thing that's annoying you, but there are so many features that are in the in the native apps that are not in the web version. So um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I would never use the web version out of choice, other than if I'm jumping on someone else's machine. And I just want to get into Discord, do something, and close it up. And I, so I'm going to open up an incognito, log in, do something, drop back out again. That's the only reason I would use a, a web, the web browser. I think that's kind of the design for it. They're probably not working on it that much. TJ? 
I suspect the web browser is detecting a change in the URL and then popping the keyboard up because, oh, the URL has changed. Let's allow the user to type something in. Wholeheartedly agree with Alex. Use the built-in app. It's amazing. Next question. Comes to us from Tommy Shantz in St. Paul, Minnesota. In regard to a new Apple VR goggle release, is there ample content available today? Nigel? Today, no. June the 6th, we'll have to wait and see. I mean, I think the reality is nobody knows, or if they know, they're not telling exactly what's going to turn up on launch day. But I think there are two questions that you've got to really ask yourself about this. One is, if this is a developer edition, what are the tools coming with it? And what, what you know, this is not a, about a consumer launch. That will come in six months or a year later, maybe. Um, so that's the first question. I think the second question is the most important question here, is what are the application usage scenarios they're going to focus this on? Is it education? Is it gaming? They're going to have to plump for a couple of focus areas. And I think what will be most interesting to see is what are those focus areas and what tools are they going to provide to those people? So if you're a consumer, there won't be any content or relatively little content for the next six months or a year. But that's what this is about, starting the uh, ball rolling on. Alex? Yeah, I don't think they have to have anything done for June. I think that it's not going it, to, I don't think the developers will have it until the fall. And the consumers probably won't have it for until the tail end of 2024, early 2025. So you're probably talking about a long curve before it's really designed as like, how do we fill it with content? Um, you know, what they're going to do is try to get developers excited about content and get them making that content. And it, they're making content for themselves, <laughs> for each other. Um, but 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 I think that that's going to be the heavy focus is get it out there, get people using it, get people thinking about what they could do with it. Um, I think that the augmenting broadcast, I think you're going to see some integration between MLS and um, and I think they may show that next week. Um, is, is so the M, you know integrating with broadcast and how do we give you those experiences, uh, education, uh, home you know purchases, games. Those are all things that are, I think are probably big markets for for these um, devices. Um, definitely exploration um, will, will be interesting, science, that type of thing. So I think that those will be some some areas that they most likely pay attention to. But they're just building them. They're building, this has been the most intense foundation building I've ever seen in any product in as long as I've been doing this. You know, they, they started, they introduced USDZ, I think five or six years ago. They've been slowly just adding features and adding pieces for years now, changing all of their OS, changing everything around it. You know, all that extra processing that's in some of the M1s and M2s are all built around supporting this. I mean, it's a, it's quite a thing, you know, to to watch. And so it's what you can only do. This as a trillion dollar company, <laughs> you know, that that doesn't have to, that isn't worried about making the next quarter, you know. And so, uh, so we'll see. What, we'll if if, if VR is ever going to work, it's going to work over the next year and a half for Apple. Um, and if it doesn't, then it's probably going to be dead. But I, but I, I have a feeling it's going to do pretty well. Um, and I think the hard part for other people is going to be to keep up with what what Apple's doing um, with it, because I think that we're also going to potentially see, you know, content support inside of Final Cut and Motion. Maybe not in June, but coming up in the fall, uh, mostly because they, you know, those are great uh, content engines for the for the headset. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas is next with this question. What would justify using a robotic camera like this one in a production? And he's got a link there to something called Sisu Robotics, SisuCinemaRobotics.com. And if you want to look it up, it's spelled S-I-S-U, CinemaRobotics.com. TJ? 
if you're using a robotic camera like this, um, you would probably want to be doing it if you have a um, particular shot that you need to repeat, um, the particular camera move rather, that you need to repeat precisely over and over again. Let's say you're doing um, some type of special effects that you need to, you're compositing, okay, I'm going to take one pass and then I need to do another pass to composite so that you get the precise framing on every shot. Or if you're doing a very complicated camera move that involves a lot of you know twisting and, and pulling and moving around, um, that would also be easier for um, somebody to implement. I, I think too, there's a scene in, I think it was La La Land, where there's a whip pan that's done between a singer and the piano player. And not only is it a whip pan, it's also changing the um, height of the camera. And there are very few camera operators that can do that precise of hand camera work. Alex? Yeah, I mean, one of these are mostly used as commercial broadcasts, some commercial and also for film, when, when there's a couple of different ways that you might use this uh, for commercial. And probably the best example of it is if you do, cam if you search camera robots, um, Marquez Brownlee um, has a, one probably five years ago that he did with motorized precision, which are very similar arms to these. Um, and he'll show you um, some of the stuff that he was doing as a podcaster. I think he still has that arm and I think he still uses it. Uh, but for product shots, it's great because you have just the way you want the product shot to work and you build those things out to make that work. Another way that they're used is in stop motion, especially in stop motion if they do it in stereo. What they'll do is they'll actually have the arm come down and they'll build the camera move so it's going to do what it needs to do. And then the arm, when it shoots the image, it goes, it does this funny thing where it goes down. I've actually sat in the studio when they do this and it comes down and goes, takes both eyes with one with one camera. It'll go doot, doot, and, and, and just, and take both photos so that it's taking the stereo each, on each one of those, um, you know, to, to make that happen. Um, and then finally, one of the things that you do is you, you can use it to integrate with a lot of, you know, basically tie-in sets. So one of the things that, that I worked on was a shot where, we had a, um, a big ship um, that was in the water or going towards the water, being carried by a bunch of little things, and um, and the ship had the, there was a there was a uh, jolly shot with some stuff in the foreground and an open beach, and we had to add stuff back into it, and specifically we had to add a a model of that ship, and that ship was uh, a one twelfth model of the of the full size ship. So what they did is they match moved the shot of the of the sh they they match moved the camera. And then they, you apply that, you take that match move and we scale it down one twelfth, and then apply it to the motion control arm. And the motion control arm then reproduces the move that that match move did, but at one twelfth scale against the ship with the right lighting and everything else. So now you have a shot of, of the ship over a blue screen that um, that is the right move for that's scaled down for that piece. And so now, and then you take that ship and you put it into your compositing app and do a little tracking to tie it back together. Um, you know, it's not pixel perfect, but it's very close. Um, but that means that all of your all of the um, vanishing points and everything else work but you've scaled it down. And so you, you're able to uh, take a miniature and put it inside of a full-sized scene and have it actually match. So those are some of the things that, that it can be used for. They're, they're very powerful, very expensive, <laughs> but very powerful. And um, we're going to try to get one of the, something like this into um, our stage in, over the summer. So stay tuned for that. Next question. Olivier Rashad Saigon is back again with could a black magic hyperdeck act as an HDMI to SDI bi-directional converter to control my black magic micro studio 4K through my Atom Extreme via the via the control software. Alex 
I see where you're going. I don't think it'll work. <laughs> so I don't think this is going to work. It's not going to, you can record it and you should be able to pass the audio, the video through, but I don't think it's going to do the conversion that you need. So it's not designed to pass that video from one to the other. Uh, only those bi-directional converters are designed for that. So I don't think it, it could work. Or maybe Blackmagic thought further out than that, but I don't, I don't think so. Mitchell? Yeah, I concur with Alex. Um, <clears throat> perhaps input to output, but not the other way. It doesn't work that way. Um, the other thing I'd look out for is my black magics, and I've got two of them, are real finicky about staying in touch with the uh, control software. It just sometimes disappears. I don't know why. Next question. Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. From a camera perspective, should I look into the Insta360 or Panasonic Lumix? Alexander? The Insta 360 is a fine camera, but I mean, Tony, your your iPhone looks pretty good. Um, you know, going back to what Alex Lindsay said earlier, you want to shorten your depth of field. You're going to really have to look at a, a more serious camera with an actual replaceable lens. I'm using a Lumix G7 camera with uh, with a third party uh, lens right now, and uh, that that's how I'm getting my shallow depth of field. So you'd have to look at some kind of mirrorless camera or something like that. Uh, to get that kind of uh, look. Alex. Um, yeah, I, yeah, you're trying to shorten that depth of field. So, so I would be looking at uh, the, the, some of the Sonys or the Panasonics that are gonna have uh, Super 30. I would consider it a Super 35 minimum, given how much throw you have to the back end. What you're probably looking for is some kind of used camera that's going to give you, uh, you want a full frame sensor. So you're looking for a full frame um, image sensor. So it might be used, it might be something else, but that's gonna help shorten that depth of field. I think that because when you shorten it to that level, I think that the autofocus becomes really important. So if you're looking at that, I think you're going to have to, you're probably looking for a Sony of some some way, shape, or form. Next question. Next one comes to us from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. What are the best bang for the buck hard drive types for video editing? Go ahead, Alex. Uh, I have a couple of these, and I'm, the thing that I'm most happy with is that OWC Express 4M2. So these are NVMe RAIDs, um, and these are, you can basically, you buy them empty at 30, uh, 30, $350 or something like that, and then you can add these NVMe's into them. You can get them up to 32 terabytes if you put 8, gig, eight terabyte NVMe's in, and um, they are, you know, they're not as fast as an internal drive on a studio, which is like 5 gigs, but the, they are 22.8. Uh, 2.8 gigs, 2,800 megabit megabytes a second, and that is a enormous amount of of, of throughput. Um, and so I think that if you're if you're on a Mac, um, the, you know, using Thunderbolt, uh, these are probably the best value uh, when it when you really take into account stability, time, cost, all the things together. Um, I think these are probably the, the best value out there right now. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, ditto on the NVMe uh, drives. If you're thinking of a spinning hard drive, um, I like the Western Digital, especially the G Drive series that they have. Uh, but NVMe is really tough to beat because you got a huge throughput on those. And Bill? And you may or may not be able to avoid the amount of store or afford the amount of storage that you want on a uh, traditional and on an NVMe drive because they tend to be expensive because they're all solid state. Um, but you said OWC, and that's where I typically buy my drives. And I look around their site. They have spinning drives. They have the new NVMe drives. They have all the latest technology. Plus, they also do the larger, big kind of monolithic desktop hard drives that are configured in RAID arrays that are very fast, uh, 
even within the limitations of spinning traditional drives. So depending on your budget, you might want to look there for a better storage versus cost ratio for large storage amounts. Uh, the, the chip storage things are still pretty expensive when you get up into terabytes of storage. And Alex? Yeah, it just depends on what, what your project looks like. Um, I, at this point, I won't, I, the only thing we use spinning drives for is archive. So we, I won't put any work, work on spinning drives anymore. I've had too many, too many problems with them. <laughs> and, so, and so once you get used to solid state, it's pretty hard to go back. And the MVME stuff has gotten so inexpensive that, you know, um, you know, I don't have a lot. And it depends, by the way, Gordon, on, on how big your, look at how big your project is. For some reason, most of my projects, even fairly large ones, sit inside of about eight terabytes. Sometimes they get up to sixteen terabytes, and so so a sixteen terabyte um, system is a is, uh, and then we dump those out. So you, you the system that you're working on, you work on that, and then you move it out. I mean, I am used to working for less than sixteen terabytes for a long time. So if it's really really big, you may have to do that. But I, I again, unless I'm, for archive, I'm still using spinning drives because of exactly what Bill said. It's it's less expensive. And there's and I you know we do RAID five so it's got lots of uh, redundancy uh, but I just don't simply I simply don't trust spinning drives uh, anymore so I, I've had too many burned fingers um, and so um, so I, I pretty much stick with um, with solid state. Next question, Daniel Crow in Greenville, South Carolina. Do you have suggestions for an app that would be great for playing out audio? I have a vMix based setup, but would like to move playback to audio opens, closes, and so forth into a different system. I'm open to an iPad app or a computer desktop application. Alex? Yeah, the, the only ones that I can think of right now are the um, the the ones that we've used in the past are not PC-based. So that's the only thing that I, you know, QLab is one that's that's been pretty popular as far as setting those things up, as well as, Ver I think it's called Verigo. It's um, the same company that, again, makes um, uh, Rogue Amiga has a, has a playback um uh, software that you know basically gives you an interface where you can just it's for effects and other things like that but i'd really have to think hard about separating my audio playback for hits and opens and so on and so forth from my editing package it's not something i would do naturally mitchell broadcast folks use things like wavecart made by bsi uh they're like touch panel type uh, devices soundboards that'll work well and jason the Stream Deck actually does this natively. If you install the Stream Deck app, um, you should be able to just simply uh, do that just straight up through Windows. It's, you know, it's not perfect, but it's not bad. Next question. Tony Mobley's up next from Noonan, Georgia. Panelists, please share your experience in DaVinci Resolve on the iPad. Alex. I would say that DaVinci Resolve on the iPad was was the best video experience that I've had on the iPad until Final Cut came out. So the Final Cut one, the Final Cut is really, uh, you know, the interface. I think the DaVinci Resolve is, it felt like it's really trying to be very much like the DaVinci Resolve on the on the desktop, which I respect and I understand why it does that. Um, Final Cut is built for the iPad. The, the for version for Final Cut, the Final Cut editing platform is built for the iPad experience, you know, and um, so, so far my, my playing around with it, I haven't built, I haven't done a, a whole project in either one. I've built little sections of things. So, so I think maybe my, my opinion may change over time. And I've used LumaFusion in the past, which I think is a great app um, to, to do a lot of those things. But when we're talking about these, I think that, um, I think that Resolve has been good. Um, it hasn't, you know, it hasn't been something like, oh, I'm going to start doing everything on Resolve. Whereas um, the Final Cut one has been, you know, obviously they spent a lot of time on it. You know, like that's the, that's the, the hard turn there. Next question. 
Douglas Carmichael, what 4K portable monitors would the panel recommend other than the U-Perfect range? Alex. To me, all 4K monitors are, are portable. You just need the right case. <laughs> so, so, so I, you know, I don't know. If like, I, I, I'd be very careful of, of defining what you want to do around the fact that the monitor is uh, portable. I think that uh, I would really look at the right casing for it. You know, I, I, I don't. I find that a lot of the portable monitors themselves are. I don't have a good way to say this in a clean show. So, so anyway, so the. Um, but I, I, I just don't think that they're very great. And Jason. Can I say that is the most Alex answer, um, at least of the day. Um, it reminds me of the, you know, there is no such thing as bad uh, weather, just bad clothing. Yeah, yeah. Next question. Next one comes from Douglas Carmichael. Do you think Apple will make eight terabyte internal SSDs more affordable? Jason? No, not really. Um, the, the best long-term... Um, effect that Apple will have is bringing really high density NVMEs to economies of scale, which in turn, in the long run, will make a difference. But Apple tends to directly, when, when you are buying internal storage from them, they charge a premium for it. And that's just part of the pricing model. Bill. Yeah, actually, I agree with that. You know, almost all of us have had the experience where in the old days, the internal storage in the computer was not as fast. Now we have the quite opposite experience. If you buy uh, an Apple product, the internal storage is blazingly fast. And it's not just the storage itself, but they have all sorts of tools, Grand Central Disk Back and, and a bunch of other things that break through a lot of problems. And now that they're in the M series chips where so much of things is on the die and there's almost zero latency passing signals around they're just super quick and a lot of us have been surprised by how fast things like our internal storage on a uh, any kind of apple computer is it's kind of surprising next question tyler roberts in chambersburg and what is the best action camera uh, gopro dji action cam or something else looking for something simple to give my fourth grader to use when we travel alex I would not give a GoPro to a fourth grader. I mean, maybe they maybe they'd learn how to do it really, really fast. Um, I own probably twenty GoPros, and uh, I would not inflict them on anyone. Um, you know, I find that the the they just could never figure out the interface. Like I I don't understand why it's so bad, but it's gotten better over time. But but it's just so like I stopped buying them. So I maybe the new ones are, are better. So you can take a look at them. But I think it by six, I think was six or seven was like the last one that I was just like, I can't I can't do this anymore. Um, so I, I, I think that if I, I don't have the DJI action cam, but I probably lean towards it, as opposed to the GoPro the GoPros had a lot of heat and stability issues over the over time as they keep on trying to grow this market out. Um, the other one that I would seriously look at is, you know, looking at the if you're you know, having if you want to try to play with something different, is some of the Insta 360, 360 ones. I know that Jeffrey, who's not on the panel today, likes them, and I've seen a lot of folks use them too with great success. Uh, being able to shoot 360 and then reframe it later um, and move it around, it could be uh, a fun way for them to do it. But as, as far as something that's ruggedized and waterproof, I'd probably think pretty hard about the D DJI because it's a uh, they they seem to be hitting on all cylinders. Mitchell, yeah, don't get a Sony Venice two. Yeah. Bad move. Yeah. It's expensive. Next question. 
John Richardson, either in New York or Florida, I can't quite parse that, uh, as, as question is, Alex, in 2016, you consulted for my mobile video company, Rolling Green Screen Studios and Edit Bays, due to the unavailability of employees, considering selling a truck, where and or how is the best place to sell a high-end truck? Alex? It's hard. Contact me. <laughs> so we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. I don't have a great I don't have a great way to do it. I'm really interested to see what the issue was with the truck. Um, you know, as far as, as what that looks like. I I think we talked about it, but we didn't I didn't I never saw the final version. So uh so we should we should uh consider I can't believe that was so long ago, seven years ago. Um anyway, so um but but I'd love to see what the truck how the truck turned out. Uh but uh it's a it, I don't know if there's any like good place to just sell it. You may want to look at whether Markitech, um, I think, might sell used uh, versions, so you might, that might be another place to to look. Um, but it is it's a hard market right now because unless you're NEP, there's not a lot of. I mean, it falls off pretty fast as far as the demand for the trucks. So um, it, it just depends on what you have there. Next question, Vincent Alvarez, back from Bellingham, Washington, on a three monitor setup. Would it be unwise to have a higher resolution monitor in the middle and two lower resolution side monitors? Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I'd stay away from that because you're going to get confused at some point. But I would suggest that you think about using one of the monitors in a vertical uh, mode because, you know, with all the docks and tear-off menus and things that are available, it's kind of a neat way to keep things off to one side. I'm getting ready to rebuild my studio here, and uh, I'm going to go with one single monitor, and I'll put all my money into that and then a vertical monitor uh, just so I have that docking capability. Jason? I've got to respectfully disagree with Mitchell. Um, I think if you have those already, um, the high resolution front and center is absolutely the way to go. And then, you know, using um, two monitors to your left and to your right, or maybe two to your left, or two to your right, as kind of ancillary workspaces, places to drag things is exactly the way to do it. And Bill. Yeah, I showed that my monitor set up here, and so I have two outboards. I think they're a little less resolution. Thankfully and amazingly, the software in my laptop, Mac operating system, the mo most modern version, looks out, sees what the resolution are, figures out how to scale and or adapt each one. And I have seen days where one of the monitors, the Mac is driving at a slightly different refresh rate or at a slightly different pixel pitch just to get it, uh, get the content that I'm asking it to display displayed correctly. So it's a pretty intelligent system. And John? When you order your Apple goggles next week, you won't need monitors anymore. Next question. John Richardson comes in from, again, New York and Florida. Does anyone else think Apple is crazy to even be selling any computers with only 8 gigabytes of soldered RAM? Alexander. Well, John, you've stepped onto a hot button issue because do I think 8 gigabytes is enough? No, uh, there is historical precedence for this. I mean, for years, Apple on iOS devices, they dragged their heels on the base model iOS devices were shipping for with 64 gigabytes of storage space, which was ridiculous for, for way too long. They finally bit the bullet and decided to replace it with 128 gigs. So they've done this kind of stuff before. I mean, just look at iCloud, the the basic iCloud free to, uh, storage plan. They only give you five gigabytes of storage space. So I'm not surprised that they're still shipping computers with eight gigabytes. I think 16 gigs nowadays should be the, the base minimum. But uh, I'm curious what other people on the panel think about that. 
Alex? I have a lot of 8 gig uh, Mac minis. I'm quite happy with them. It just depends on what you're using them for. Uh, You know, if you're using them as a workstation, that's not enough. (laughs) But but we use them as glue. Uh, Remember, an 8 gig Mac mini can output 8 1080p, you know, streams, you know, via SDI. Uh, at about 55% capac- you know, usage, and it's not touching the RAM. Like, it's just not, so the RAM by itself is not that important. Um, so it depends on how you're going to use it, but I, I, I do love the fact that Apple gives us a, le- a less expensive version that we can buy. Buying an M2 Mac Mini for $599, $499 if you're in education um, is kind of amazing. And I, and I wouldn't want them to, you know, what it's going to cost more to put a 16 gigs in, so that means our our basement cost would be higher. And there's a lot of us that don't, need it you know i just don't i don't need it to be have more ram um in fact if if i could get one for 399 and it was only four gigs i'd probably buy it um you know because there's so many things that i do with my mac minis um i have one mac mini that you know is desk is dedicated to this right that, that i can draw on that is you know it's this happens to be m1 only because of the way we built it but but it it was my older version was running on a 2012 mac mini <laughs> You know, so with probably four gigs of RAM. So so there's plenty of things that we can and want to do. I wouldn't want the the base price to go up because we decided that there had to be a, a, a minimum there. And Bill. Yeah, I'm reflecting what everybody else has said. If it's your daily driver, it's way too little. But for, there's so many niches. I used to take whatever my oldest laptop was that's no longer in current use, and it would become the new teleprompter driver, and I just put it in that kit. And it was perfectly acceptable for doing that job in the field. And it uh, spending any money for anything beyond that minimum configuration just didn't make any sense for that use. And Alex? And the great news is if you disagree with us, you can just buy one with more RAM. <laughs> so, so you, you know, you're not you're not stuck in it, but there's there's a plenty there's plenty of you know they they didn't cap it off. So so I think, that, but I think that having uh, eight gigs like, again my, between own I know and myself probably have fifteen of them uh, that are eight gigs, and they they do exactly what they were built to do every day. Well, next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Cinegear has an exhibitor with a product called AirTube, which is a new way of softing your LED tube lights. Pump it up and you're ready to go. Alex. Yeah, we covered this yesterday. Uh, I think this is a repeat of the question. So, um, so yeah, it looks, looks good. And we'll probably check it out at, at, uh, at Cinegear. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, has anyone used Promox, Proxmox, P-R-O-X-M-O-X, as a server virtualization platform for personal use? I've been testing it, and it seems to have more capability for less cost than VMware. However, VMware experience is more marketable. Any thoughts? And he's got a link. Alex. Yeah, the one that I've been, that I that, um, I know that Kevin in our office is using is the Shadow PC. Um, I don't know if that, that solves all the problems that Douglas is talking about. I think Douglas might have been one of the first people to bring that one up, but but the Shadow PC is working really well. We were doing, uh, I know I walked in and I was asking Kevin, like, where did we get that PC? And he's like, oh, that's just a, that's, that's, that's a, that's a PC in the cloud. And, um, and they, we were using it to combine some LiDAR scans and so on and so forth. So it's, it's, um, I think that's the one I'd probably look at. It's 50 bucks a month and it, it's persistent and, uh, looks like it, it works pretty well. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. What makes a good director's chair? There are some samples. Here are some samples uh, of an outfit that will be at Cinegear, professional-grade studio director's chairs, personalized. And it's, I guess, a company called Filmcraft Studio Gear uh, at filmcraftla.com. Alex. 
Yeah, these look good. I mean, craftsmanship is important. Uh, we covered this yesterday as well. So um, th this is, uh, but but these um, these ones look good. They look like they're built well. Uh, having them not break while you're on set or on in front of camera is the key to the operation. So uh, good hinges is really important. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Comment on these small miniature cameras that will be at Cinegear, and it's called IndieCam.com. Alex. Yeah, another one that was covered yesterday. <laughs> so it's, it's, we, we answer the same questions, but we don't answer exactly the same questions again every day. So, uh, so this is the, another one that was covered in the in uh, yesterday, and, and they, they look fine. We'll, we'll take a look at them. Next question. Next one from Idris Haji in uh, Fairfax, Virginia. Planning for a new classroom AV project for a future classroom build. Apart from Ethernet, what other AV cables should be installed for sending audio and video s uh, signals from TV speakers and projector sources? Jason. If you have the money, I would do this as much as possible with Balins and with Ethernet, just verbosely Ethernet. I would also plan for power in as many places as possible. Do not just put two outlets in the ceilings. That's a terrible idea because if you end up with something like a Balin, um, you're going to end up needing to power it. Uh, more importantly, uh, TAC-12 is real cheap. Just put it in the walls and that you know that is the best way to be future-proofed. Uh, lastly, I guess, um, no, no, that's about it. I'm going to stick with that. And Alex. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you're trying to get between classrooms, uh, or, or just one classroom. So that's the, that's the question I have there. Uh, I would agree that if you're, um, if you're trying to go between classrooms, we look at like, how do we fill up a whole facility? And I completely agree. I don't think you need TAC-12 if you're only in one classroom, but if you're going between lots of classrooms, you're trying to supply them. I, the first thing I tell people to do is put TAC-12 in. TAC-12 means that you are future-proofing every room for your lifetime. You know, like I don't, I mean, I, maybe I'm being aggressive, but I don't think that you'll, because our technology of how we use those, that light um, is, uh, is pretty uh, aggressive. You can put eight HD channels onto one piece of fiber and we're putting 12 in. <laughs> so, so, the, uh, so there's an enormous amount of bandwidth that could go back and forth. I still then like Ethernet. I still like some, you know, one of the things that we've learned in some of the installs is to build like little uh, install systems that have uh, a couple XLRs, a couple SDI, a couple HDMI, and the TAC-12 just kind of wrapped up in the back that we're going to use if we need it. And then have a, and, and, or you can have it set up as a breakout box. So the TAC-12 com comes out and it ends up getting exposed and you have a box and that box can be a variety of different things and you hook it up to the, hook it up to the outlet. So if you don't want to put it in the wall, put something in that is a service to that, to a, to a given box and that box can keep on changing what, what it is that lets it, lets it pop out. And so those are things to kind of think about when you think about those installs, but it is, um, uh, um, it, it, is an, it is important to really think about the future. Don't buy just what you need. As far as moving audio and video within a classroom, one of the things that has been the most useful is just making sure that you have an Apple TV in there, um, especially on a, on a, if you have a Mac-based classroom. Uh, the Apple TV is so easy to air, air, you know, airplay to um, from many, many, many devices, um, and I use it all the time. Everything from close-up cameras, because remember, you can take your phone, airplay it to it, and start showing the classroom something. Um, so it's, it's a really, really powerful way to, without wiring, just to have it set up. Next question. Next one comes to us from Eduardo Augustine in Panama. Which way, uh, which is the app used for your Telestrator and where can we find it? That must be for Alex. Yeah, I think so. Alex? 
Oh, we are so close. There's a couple little niggling things that we're working on to try to get fixed, um, and then we're going to release it. It's it's super close. Um, so we're really excited about it. Juan Car- Juanse Carlos has, has been putting it together, and um, and it is uh, Juanse Robles. Sorry, Ron Juan. <laughs> so it's, it's, I said it too quickly. Um, it, he is. Uh, uh, doing a great job, and and we have just a handful of little um, things that we're we're finishing up. It's going to run on the iPad and on the on the Mac, um, so it'll run with a Telestrator or it'll run with a, as a mostly as a whiteboard for the on the iPad. It's not doing what video um, pencil does, which is that it doesn't do the NDI stuff because I'm not really an NDI guy. So um, so the uh, so it's it doesn't replace what video pencil does. It just is a different a different solution um, that's more. Uh, leaning towards what I do. Um, so, uh, so we're pretty excited about it. Um, it should be, should be cool. Um, and again, very, very close. It's like just a handful of things that need to be sorted out. It's, it's a very different experience. There's, uh, no interface (laughs) to it. There's just gestures on the, on the iPad and, and, uh, keystrokes on the, on the, on the Mac. And, and so, uh, we'll see what people think of it, but we should have it out. I thought it'd be in May, but I know it's going to be in June. It's just a matter of knocking out a couple little bugs that we're working on. And you say um, for people like ideal audience, like educators, who are you uh, presenters? Well, I mean, the thing is, is that it is, uh, you know, what it's really built built for is presenters. And that can be teachers. It can be anybody who wants to talk about, you know, it can be um, business folks. One of the things we found is it's really popular, the older version that I've used that I've made available to folks with the iPad, you know, like we, or not iPad, but the, with the, with the Mac, we'll, we'll use it in events. Financial people really like it. For some reason, financial people get really excited about being able to circle things on their on their um, spreadsheets. Like we gave it to one. We had a, I had an event where they, we had artists, and then we also had uh, financial people. The artists barely used it because it wasn't as good as Photoshop or Procreate or whatever they were used to. That wasn't the same, right? The financial people went crazy. Like they're suddenly able to draw. They're able to do a lot of other things, and so so there was a lot more excitement around it for them. Um, so I, you know, for me, I did a whole, uh, talk as an experiment. I didn't, if you were there at NAB, I hope you can tell me whether it worked or not, but I did a whole talk about HDR. The the problem I had was that how do you show HDR on a really bad projector? (laughs) Like it was like, like, you know, at at a, at a, at a a conference. And so I, I decided just to draw all the concepts on it. And I used it for the entire thing, talking about, um, HDR and, and, and how it works and, and, and what it looks like and showing some images and, and it, it, it really, um, you know, it, it worked really well as a whiteboard. So one of the big things is just, we want to think about the act of turning around and writing on a board. We do that because we didn't have an iPad <laughs> like, or we didn't have a computer to do that. Like right. why as a teacher are we turning around and, uh, and, and writing on a big whiteboard when we could just have a big screen up there and then we could be drawing on it. And when we draw on, on something in front of us, we're able to continue to look at the classroom. We're able to um, interact with an online audience. We're able to now save it all much more effectively. Um, and so all of those things are, are things that I, you know, we, I think about when I think about what, what it does. It also has a really seamless saving process. So like if you if you want to do storyboards, you can sit there and draw on it and you just do a swipe on your iPad and it'll save that out as an image. So you can just sit there and for me, if I want to knock out a, a bunch of concepts um, for uh, storyboards or or figure out my 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 power my my keynote thing, I can just sit there and draw. I'm gonna do this and then I just go like this and then I just do it, draw the next one and then go like this. And it's just it's just dumping those images into 
into a into um, a folder. So so anyway, there's a bunch of things about it. I mean, I've probably said more than I should before we actually release it, but but we're pretty excited about it. And it, and again, Wansi um, Robles has done a great job on it, and we're I'm excited to uh, um, excited to get it out there. So we'll so stay tuned. We'll we'll let you know when it's ready. Nice. And next question. Looks like the last one. Tony Mobley, Noonan, Georgia, recommended switcher for our setups. Tony, you want to give us some behind background? Yeah, I, I need some help. Uh, right now, I have a a sw- network switcher that's on my desk, and I'm I'm only able to use it with four devices, and I actually need. At least, I would say, I, I need to double it. I need at least eight. And so if you could send something in Discord recommendation, I know time is short. Um, if you can send something in Discord uh, recommendations, I appreciate it. Alex? Are you, are you talking about an Ethernet switch or, or a video switcher? Ethernet. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think the only thing I would I would really look at is you know Netgear has a lot of good stuff that that I that I tend to lean towards, um, and uh, PoE PoE plus is what you're trying to look for is to make sure that at least four of those ports have PoE plus uh, in them so that uh, so that you know that you can power some things that may require that. So like for instance, my little you know so I have lots of little things that just want a little bit of power, and so having that PoE plus uh, if you're using a PTZ camera, you may need PoE plus plus, but I would use an injector at that point because. Um, you, 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 that's a very, it's a rarer requirement. And usually the switches that su- support that get much more expensive. And Mickey mentions, he says, if you think you need at least eight, you actually need 16. So there it is for you, Tony. And there we are at the end of another, another Monday, another fantastic show. Thank you so much to our producers for your questions. And of course, for our panelists for coming out today on this holiday and making sure that we're able to best serve our community and answer their questions. And of course, our back end team, our production crew, for without which this would not be possible. Tomorrow, we will be back to having a second hour and our second hour is usdz in motion and final cut and if you want to learn more about the schedule for the week head over to officehours.global and i've got to let you know today the talak traversal we've gone 110 uh, 110,357 miles, 177, 601 kilometers. That's more than 800, eight, 874 million bananas for scale. That's 4.4 times around the earth. Thank you all so much and enjoy your day, night, wherever you are in the world. <laughs> Bye. Oh, and be sure to join us in after hours as well. Peaceful and thoughtful Memorial Day, everyone.
Thank you.